one thing I'll just never understand in the whole entire world is watches. <laughs> expensive watches don't make any what? sense to me. Like when they just I get watches. you want to show off your money. How about you like give it to people and be nice or something? Right? That's showing like, off what? your money in a good way. Just just believe feeling. it or not. So like world me, hunger. Like me literally being poor and still donating to every single shelter I've gotten one of my animals from on Betty White's birthday. That's cute. Did I have the money to do it? No. Did I do it anyway? Yes. <laughs> How about you do that instead of buy a stupid watch? No one cares. I usually go bring them things because um so, like, very specifically, the, what is that? The animal, what's the animal? Animal control, where I got my cat. Uh-huh. Um, St. Louis County Animal Control. Do not give them money. Not because they are bad, but because the county takes the money. If you give them things they need, the county obviously does not take cat food. What are they going to do with it? Yeah. <laughs> so then they can actually use it for their animals. But if you give them money, the money goes to the county to use for whatever they want. Yeah. So be careful. Who well, you're the places to. I give them to, it's for animals. Well, yeah, because that are, have, like, you've special health issues. No, yeah, exactly. You've, you've other stuff adopted from, from specialty yeah. locations, and I just have a loose trash cat. I just have <laughs> traumatized animals. My cat. I don't think Alistair is, but the other two are for it's, sure. It's a forty-dollar cat. <laughs> <laughs> The price represents the quality. That's <laughs> <laughs> true. She came with all her shots. And That's all what all her... the rich people think about their stupid fixed. watches, Sadie. <laughs> 40 bucks. Because people made fun of it. Like, you paid $40 for a cat? Just go to the bar and there's so many cats there. I was like, no, I paid 40 bucks for a cat that had all of its medical stuff done yeah. already. That's a great and deal. And you know it doesn't have, like, the diseases that Yeah, I've been tested for everything. Ones. Yeah. 10 out of 10, like, <clears throat> adopt from animal control. Just don't give them direct cash. Bring them, you know, cat food and towels. For a donation. Because the county can't steal towels. And if they do, that's weird. <laughs> They're like, these will go great in my bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> okay, who's going first? Doesn't matter. Is yours fun? Um, I actually cried writing mine. Oh. <laughs> Mine's not very lighthearted. Ooh. I'll All start. Right, everybody book <laughs> It's going to be a wild ride. I'll start cuz I have never um cried doing a, a thing before and I like we've done some nasty things. Nothing's even made me tear up from what I've told or you've told me. This one upset me and it <laughs> shouldn't have, I think. <laughs> This one deeply hurt me. <laughs> deeply. I was sitting there just crying, and Jin was just on my lap going, what are you doing? <laughs> she was like, and you think I have problems? <laughs> right, you know, exactly. <laughs> Judging. You're $40. <laughs> <laughs> oh, bargain kitty. Um, so, mine is the story of the, I think this is how you say it, I never did look it up, Grand Duck Mine, G-R-A-N-D-U-C, Grand Duck Grand you know, duck. I'm not great with pronunciations. I say well, it five different ways that are like basically all the same. So I, I, can't I help spelled you. it out so at least people, if they can, know, they you know. You can type it in. Yeah. So it's the Grand Duck Mine. My sources are Wikipedia, StuartBC.com, ExploreNorth.com, and oh, how do I say this? <laughs> Moliopedia.com. Uh, I think it was like a blog, if I remember right. Oh, my back. So, 
The Grand Duke Mine is a copper mine overlooking the Salmon Glacier on the Alaska slash British Columbia border um, in the mountains known as the Boundary Range. It is 22 miles north of Stewart, British Columbia, and there's also an access road that leads from Hyder, Alaska, which is how I got to this story is through Hyder, Alaska. Yeah. It's, it's like, practically on the border, like, both both of those towns mined it. Um, so the mine was active between 1964 and 1948, closing down to due to low copper prices at the time and the crippling debt that was um, from the construction costs for the mine because the mine was, the ore body was not easily accessible. So it cost a little bit to get to it and then copper prices tanked. <laughs> so they had no chance. In 1916, so this is what, this is why the Grand Duck Mine is where it is. So in 1916, the Premier Mine, um, I think it was opened. It was one of the richest gold mines in the world. Um, and because of the success of this mine and the like sheer magnitude of gold coming out of it, um... They're like, well, we gotta, we, there has to be more minerals in these mines, essentially. Mm-hmm. So they scouted around. They found this area for where the Grand Duck Mine is in 1920 and finally got, like, the funding necessary to open it in 1964. So they were expected to spend, ooh, I didn't put on commas, $55 million to establish the mine and ended up spending about triple that. And 55 is already quite a bit in 1960. Yeah. So triple that is definitely not what you're supposed to do. You're not supposed to triple your startup fees. No. (laughs) Bad business model. So this ore body at the Grand Duke Mine was deep and partially covered by a glacier. So it had to be accessed um, through tunnels instead of like, you know, like pit strip mining, which was like, you know, the way to mine if you could by that time. Yeah. So they decided to do, like, a two-pronged attack, meet the tunnel in the middle, start on either side of the mountain to get there. It was going to be an 11-mile-long tunnel. So there were a number of camps, um, and we're going to talk about just one of them. So this is, like, the primary original camp. It was positioned at the start of the tunnel on the Stewart side, so the Canada side of the ore body um, it had four bunkhouses meant to hold around 140 people, a dining hall, a recreation hall, an auditorium, offices, and a powerhouse. Um, and it was, the idea was we need to keep up morale because these are just like the worst conditions because it's just basically cold, nasty constantly, right? Like yeah. they're an extremely isolated location that has bad weather. <laughs> um, so like, it was apparently like, not bad working conditions when it comes to mines. There was also a large landing strip that they constructed on the glacier next to the mine that would allow for supply deliveries whenever the weather was good. And any other goods were transported by a cat train that took a 22-mile route crossing a 5,500-mile pass and several glaciers that led from the this primary camp to Stewart never heard the of town. a cat train. I have no clue what a cat train is and I forgot to look it up. 
I'll look it up. Yes, please. So September of 1964, work began on the tunnel. Like to access the ore. So, that, you know, they're pecking into the side of the mountain now. So now we're going to do some weather prefacing. So the area gets around 800 inches of snow every year. Um, not 80, not 8, not 18, 800, 800 inches of snow every year. And that's like average. <laughs> and this particular year, do you know what a cat train is? A cat train is a train of one or more supply sleds slash, slash sleighs hauled by a continuous track vehicle and is typically used in roadless areas. That sounds cute. It sounds weird. I would like to see it. Let me restart. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, they got what? (laughs) So during the second week of February in 1965, 17 feet of snow fell. No. Just in that that week. Oh, sorry. 16 feet of snow. I was one over. How do you move? Um, What? I, snowshoes, I suppose. You, but then they, how do you no, get they, on top? they were literally they're miners. They are mining out the snow. They just moved the snow out of the area and cleared up their workspaces, so it's like bare ground essentially on the bottom. Oh so this is what they're working on doing. They're like it didn't stop production. People who were gonna dig the tunnel dug the tunnel, and everyone else dug out the camp essentially. Because like things are buried, <laughs> but this wasn't like the problem. Like this is just how it was of living it out wasn't. there. <laughs> so, um, ten. 10.16 a.m., February 18th, 1965, at at this main camp at the tunnel entrance. 65? Yeah, 1865. So it's, it's oh, not even... Oh, I thought you said 1965. I was like... Oh, 1965. This is only in the 60s? Yes, this is in the 60s. I'm thinking this is... I, pr- I might have said that one wrong, but I'm pretty sure I said the 1960s for the rest did, of it. You but I... Yes, no, this is... making me think this is like times. No, this is like 60 years ago. More than that. Oh, my gosh. 10.16 a.m., February 18th, 1965, at this main camp at the tunnel entrance. The mountain above lets loose millions of tons of snow, and it's practically silent. Avalanche. Get out the same Um, But it's it's silent. Like, they don't know it's coming. It, it just is there. Isn't that how avalanches are supposed to be? You don't hear a big rumble? It just... No, yeah, they're, they're, they're usually silent. So... The radio op- operator, Innes, 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 Innes Kelly, manages to send out one brief mayday before the equipment give out because the buildings oh. hit. Um, um, that but that's enough to initiate a massive rescue force. Yeah, because that's it's, good. It's that's weird good. that it goes silent. So both Canada and U.S. assemble like a significant force for this very remote location. Yeah. But they're battling the storm that's depositing the sheer amount of snow that yeah. led to an avalanche being possible anyway. Um, and there's also 50 to 60 mile per hour winds, which make Gee. using like helicopters or planes impossible. Because they yeah. have that airstrip right next to it. They can get planes in when the weather's good. The weather is not good. So they can't do that. So they use four cat trains at top speed to <gasps> plow through all the drifts to make oh it to the gosh. camp. <laughs> Little cat trains save the day. I think they're little. I have to assume they're not full-size trains. <laughs> your, your Stop Google search it is right just images now. of cats. This is not what I want. I want to see. Stop. 
It's a cat in a train. Stop. Look at that one. Cardboard. Audrey, you have a cat train. I do. <laughs> I have literally this one. Yeah, the little Christmas. It's like this, I guess. It sort of looks like a tractor. I know. But that's all that's coming up for pictures. I know. And it's either that or like massive, massive trucks. I keep getting those. Because this is a sleigh. But I think it's like bobcat. And that's like the train. So it's like a little tractor on, yeah. on snowmobile. It's just a bobcat. Either way, um, these maybe that's why bobcats are called that. These cat trains, four of them managed to plow through all the drifts and get like that first set of people in to help dig everybody out. Because at this point, that's that's what's going to kill people is not finding them in time. If they didn't get hit from the blunt force, everybody else has, like, a limited amount of time to be saved. You suffocate. Um, yeah, it's true. St. Bernard's. They're gonna dig you out and then booze you up. Mm-hmm. So anyway, so these four cat trains get in, and then Cape Romaine, a U.S. Coast Guard cutter, manages to make it up the canal slash river that leads into the area mm-hmm. to start evacuating people. And they're taken down to Taku, which is a massive Alaskan ferry that they had equipped as a hospital because there's no towns nearby like yeah. this. They had to bring the hospital to them or certain people weren't going to be able to survive, right? Yeah. And it had sailed to the closest harbor to the disaster. Like, they were super on top of all of this, thankfully. Um, so, like, a wide array of military, police, and civilian aircraft and boats just, like, all convene at once to try to get into the area. Um, again, from both Canada and Alaska, every everybody's trying to get the miners out, which is good. Yeah. <laughs> so here's a description of the scene that the rescuers find. This is a uh, quote. So it is an eerie, desolate scene. A huge signal fire sends up warning flames and sparks. A beacon, a beacon to rescuers. One building, on, one building only intact. Tired men huddle inside. Twenty fellow workers are out there in the snow, probably dead, in their shattered bunkhouse. The injured lie on the floor. Dr. VZ from Stewart moves from one to the other, doing his best under primitive conditions. There is no light. It's cold. I assume this is like a telegram that they're sending back. Yeah. Based on the sentence choice. Mm-hmm. Um, or just a quick radio or something. But so it's uh not good. <laughs> so m- much of the camp is destroyed, specifically the um eastern half, because you can you can look up diagrams of the avalanche and it. Yeah. the The buildings that survive don't survive because they, like, oh, they were sturdy. They were just literally weren't hit because yeah. avalanches are very specific. Um. The avalanche forked at some point, so. A number of survivors were originally missed and had to dig themselves out. A lot of people actually dug themselves out, it seems. Like, I most of them got caught in it. I'd be like, So, 20-year-old Bertram Owen Jones, a cook, was holding a knife when the uh, <laughs> cookhouse was blown apart, because that is what happens in an avalanche. Luckily, he was caught under a portion of the wall, which created a nice little air bubble for him. So um, <laughs> he managed to cut his way out 
It took him three hours to do so, and he had a tool, so I can't imagine doing it without a tool. Uh, with your bare hands? Yeah. Oh. Um, like, like, he's so lucky that he got cut under a wall and had a knife with him. Yeah. So he survived. Good for him. I know, or Eno, it's E-I-N-O, my Lila, M-Y-L-L-Y-L-A, I tried my best. Um, who was a carpenter, was buried for 79 hours <gasps> because a helicopter landed uh, on top of where he was under the snow. No. So they didn't get to there right away. And he was found days later when a bulldozer dislodged the cap of ice <gasps> that had like he had luck- been lucky enough to get caught under um, that, that had protected him and given him a more significant air bubble. Yeah. He suffered from frostbite, dehydration, and ox- oxygen deprivation, and was hospitalized for months. Did he live? Yeah. How? I mean, I guess igloos keep you warm. Well, yeah, I was gonna say there's there's a, there's a like. Oh my gosh! Minimum I, temperature I'm just things like that. Reach. Aren't wearing like. Because a lot of these people got caught in the middle of just, like, doing stuff around the camp. I... So is everybody wearing their full winter gear inside oh, of the homes? I don't know for... In the... I don't know about in the homes. I don't know how well things are heated. or whatever. Um, but I know anybody who's out and about working already probably had like, a Like, did he lose on. limbs because of frostbite or just, like, a couple At toes? the very least, digits. <laughs> Um, so 20 men, 21 men were driving the tunnel when the avalanche hit. Um, so they were fine because they were in the tunnel. Yeah. Um, they, they, there was enough tunnel that it didn't, didn't bother them, which did mean they could go and help dig out survivors. And they had the tools to dig out survivors because I bet most of the other tools were, uh, buried. Yeah. Because that would be another problem you have. Um, so most men that were like most survivors that were not hit hit not like buried in the snow were obviously digging out others but they were a number that did rob the commissary <laughs> which like i get <laughs> the time is now <laughs> <laughs> which is like it's like y'all like you could be the difference between people surviving and not but also like you know i understand um one of the problems was many of the miners were new to their job because this particular mine was paying uh, quite well because it sort of sucked to be out there. Mm-hmm. And it was like a high profile project. It was like a cool, like they're doing new technology thing. It had not been done before this kind of mining in this kind of location, which which was really sad because there's a number of people who like literally just got there. Yeah. Like if they had been delayed a day. It, it wouldn't would have changed everything yeah. for them specifically. So, like, um, Blake and Rod oh. Rose went against their mother's wishes and had become minors just a few days before. Oh. And they did not make it. Oh, of And course. Greg Anderson, the janitor, had just arrived at that particular camp four days prior. <gasps> and he didn't make it either. Oh. It's just like, oh, they were... It's like, obviously all deaths are sad, but when it's like, oh, it was so, so close. They weren't even supposed to be there. That, that kind of feeling, Yeah. yeah. But I, I bet it goes the other way, too. I bet there are a number of men that were supposed to be there and weren't. Yeah. Or, like, you know, there's, there's, I bet there's a person who decided they wanted to sleep that day and someone else took over their shift driving the uh-huh. tunnel. And that, you know, there's, it's, there's always stories like that. Um, Just how life goes. So, of the 154 men in the camp, 68 were caught in the avalanche, um, which that shows you how many were up and out 
uh-huh. not in the buildings. Um, 26 died. 20 were injured. Only 19 bodies, from what I understand, were ever recovered. And the portal camp, which is the name of this camp at the entrance of the tunnel at the base of the mountain, was never reopened. As there were no means of stopping this from happening again. Yeah. You can't just stop the avalanches. The only way to you stop an avalanche prevent them, but... is to cause an avalanche. Yeah. <laughs> so that that's that's the history. All right. <laughs> um which I ended up liking so much that I, I unfortunately find the paranormal just odd yeah. and not very good. But this story itself was it's a good was story. frightening. Yeah. <laughs> Something I haven't heard of. And I had not heard of it. Well, I feel like for true crime paranormal podcasts, you could literally just cover natural disasters. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's not technically crime, but our title covers it. Wow, <laughs> I just hit my back. So paranormal. So it's, it's I only found one thing about this and it was like a weird blog post about this guy who was um who seemed to be like a legitimate person who had experienced this apparently but he was just going with his like friends who was who had a meeting in Hyder, alaska he was the friend had a meeting to like discuss skiing locations they wanted to like open up skiing tourism in the area uh-huh. um so this guy is not not doesn't need to be there for the meeting. He just went to go on like a road trip yeah. to this this you know cool isolated He's like, location. Hey, I'm going up here. I'm the meeting will just last like two hours, and then we can go do something. Yeah, no, exactly. Okay. It was that kind of thing. So this is in 1989. So this man goes out and he decides to only explore the woods in the area because what else are you gonna do? It's a practical ghost town because the mount the mines are closed up. Yeah, who's, who's gonna live there? People still do live there. It's actually a problem right now because they get most of their supplies in Stewart. And with the COVID border closures, they can't get their supplies anymore. They're, they're, I think they're only allowed to go over there for like three hours once a week. Dang. Which is better than nothing for sure. Yeah. Anyway, so he's, he's out there exploring the woods. It's about two in the afternoon in the summer. So it's 100% light out. It's probably going to be that light out until, you know, midnight. Um, and then he saw something odd. It was like a tornado of light, but it had no sound, and it was horizontal. <laughs> Are you sure this wasn't aliens? not vertical like a tornado? Um, so we have this spitting tube of light that's silent, and it's sort of moving towards him, but not like coming towards him, right? Like it's not going for him; it's just wandering it's there, his way. Yeah. Um. So he hides behind a tree. <laughs> what what else should you do? Um so but now the light tunnel is what this is what he starts calling it is this light tunnel because I guess that's what it is. It's a tube. A tube tunnel's a tube, right? Um so the tunnel's now positioned so that he can like see down it. Like it's moved that far now because he like watched uh-huh. it come towards him. Now it's facing him. He's looking in and he sees twenty six figures made of light. Oh. They're organized into four groups of six. My my question is, why are you counting? I don't. I, I think it's because they're, something weird they're in like a specific this, formation. They're they're in a. I mean, yeah, but if I'm seeing something weird like this, I'm not like, oh, one, two, three. <laughs> like, hold on, hold on, I'm, everybody, freeze! How many like, of you are there? <laughs> yeah, this is anyway. Okay. I agree with you. Why is he counting? Why is he counting? <laughs> when when there's that many, why is he counting? Yeah. If anyway, there's two, it's like okay, because then you just it's, see it's two. Obvious, but otherwise, yeah. you 
purposely counted them. There is more than six. I'm probably not going to get an accurate count. Me out is what I'll Um, say. So anyway, they're apparently organized into four groups of six, and two figures sort of like come out and lead them into the tunnel, like they're welcoming them in. Um, And then there's this light gate. Apparently, I don't know why we don't explain this. That there's a light gate before. There's a light gate. And the, these two leading them open up the light gate and they all go inside and then the light tunnel just travels back away. <laughs> and this is, he's like, I guess I just saw those spirits get varied off to the afterlife. And I'm all I can think is like, well... That happened in 1965. I was going to say, why would it happen 20 years later? This is 1989. Maybe the miners are collecting other lost souls and having them go to heaven or something? Well, it's it's 26. Like, the exact number that died in the avalanche. And that's why it's connected to this this mine. You know, maybe it's aliens. I I really struggle with this one. All I can think, it's like, you know, and they, since they died so suddenly, they didn't get to get their, you know drachma together to pay to get over the river sticks and you know greek mythology is is the correct answer (laughs) and this was the fairy boat shuttling them off to the fairy world or not to the fairy world into hades (laughs) i it it was it was bizarre something i've never heard before definitely all of this was a new kind of story (laughs) so weird so yeah 100 percent. what happened was uh very tragic but everyone seemed to be on top of it. And their main mistake was building anything at the base of the mountain. Correct. When it snows that much. Um, yeah. But they, they did learn their lesson, which is saying something because a lot of mining and mining They'd be like, Put them back. owners don't. They're like, no, we put too much in, in money into this. Get, get over again. there. <laughs> so we got to congratulate the mine owners for not doing that. Good job. Um, Sadie, they donate. They don't get the more Lexus. They donate their money. Oh, okay. <laughs> that's, that's why. It's also why they uh, they don't seem like great businessmen in general. You know, when you're nice, sometimes you're not as good. You lose out a little bit, I guess. All right. Time for mine. I'm ready. So this is a story of Louis D. Hastings. Louis I got D. my Hastings. information from murderpedia.org. Um, only in your state.com amuck.fandom.com amuck um nytimes.com and washingtonpost.com um i got most of my information from amuck.fandom.com and this website kind of stressed me out because it seemed like it was almost a fan page for the type of story i'm about to like tell. they were a little bit too into it and it's not okay to be that into it yeah, I don't, I don't know if they're just there, like, they're just specialized in this type of story. But the fact that fandom is in the title. I didn't explore the website because I was scared that the FBI would see it in my search history and be like, <laughs> is she going to kill everyone? Wait, what? The am The one. Fandom. Yeah. Okay. So I didn't look any further than the page that I got my stuff from. Now but... I need to know what the story is to know why this... Why is this website? I don't know. It just made me nervous looking at all the side things on the website. I I don't, I'm not going to say it's a bad website, but that's like almost what it seemed like to me just by the website name. But it felt weird. Yeah. Okay. So Lewis was born in Leewood, Kansas on January 1st, 1944. 
His father wasn't a very good to him growing up, and eventually he left the family. The father, not the son. Um, his mother and sister said that he grew up as a shy child and was treated for chronic depression when he was young, but grew up to become a caring and gentle adult who loved animals. After high school, he served in the Air Force and possibly co- possibly college. Possibly served in college? No, possibly af- not after high school, but after college. I'm not 100% sure. Anyway, after some form of school, he mm-hmm. served in the Air Force and later became a computer programmer and got a job at Stanford University around 1975. In June of 1979, he married Madeline Stovall, um, a Stanford librarian, and during their honeymoon at the Kennecott Lodge near McCarthy, um, Alaska, they decided to quit their jobs in California and move to Alaska the following spring. So, in 1980, they moved into a duplex in Anchorage, where Lewis operated a computer service company, which wasn't very successful. Um, Disturned? Is that a word? Disturned? I think it's supposed to be disturbed. Disturbed by... (laughs) (laughs) Disturbed by the economic development and population growth it brought... I'm not sure what I'm saying right now. Um, He became increasingly opposed to the Trans-Alaska Pipeline and contemplated to stop his, this process and destroy it. I understand. Okay, good. Because I feel like I'm not making any sense. Um, According to a psychiatrist, he essentially considered himself the savior of Alaskan wilderness. Is he which gonna is be like a like a which is bold, which is bold to say when you literally just moved there, like this is not. But like he, he loves it. Andre. This is not like your place to decide that. But whatever. So to escape the influence of civilization, Hastings and his wife purchased a home on the property of the Kennecott Copper Mine, about five miles from McCarthy, and spent the summer of 1982 rebuilt, repairing, and building. That, um, home slash cabin. Mm-hmm. Um, McCarthy was inaccessible by road in the wintertime, and they had no telephone service. So, by early 1983, his computer business began to go under, and due to marital problems, his wife stayed in Anchorage most of the time. Oof. So, <laughs> at this time, Lewis once again started to elaborate his attack plan on the pipeline oh, gosh. because just everything that goes wrong in his life he blames on the pipeline because that makes sense what was his it's just what was the job he was trying to do out there um he started his own computer repair business and how is the pipe i don't understand why the pipe like uh, listen i'm it's not just one of those pipeline that... i am i just don't get it i just no, don't get the connection it's just one of those people that Nothing can ever be your fault, so you always have to find something, something to blame yeah. it on. I and understand. he probably watched the news a lot and decided the pipeline was just, it must be. just the scapegoat that he needed yeah. for his problems. So, um, he had bought multiple guns and at least 2,000 rounds of ammunition, built a silencer that was covered in beaver fur for a pistol he wanted to use... 
Interesting. And he prepared for murders by shooting a rabbit. A rabbit. <laughs> yep, that's it. I'm ready. That didn't make sense to me either, but... Because I was like, oh, okay, I guess rabbit hunting, okay. But it literally just said a rabbit. And I was like, well, you know, if that's what does it for you, then all right. Um, he also compiled a list of 200 of Alaska's pol- political and civil civic leaders, I cannot read, including phone numbers and home addresses of the members of the Anchorage Police Department's crisis and in, in intervention response team. Fun. So that's pretty scary that he had mm-hmm. all that information. Yeah. Um, so there, I could not find a single source online that tells like the full account of what happened. Um, and there's multiple different accounts of like how the following events went down, but this is the only story that like fully covered the whole entire day and all the other ones were just like, this happened he did this, and then here's, like, we're all sad. And I was just and like, okay, sad. but, like, I, I want to know, like, what actually happened, because, like, mm-hmm. no one tells you. So this is from that one website I was telling you about, so if there's stuff in here that, like, isn't right and other people know it isn't, like, this is just the only thing I could find yeah. that actually, like, details the whole day. Um, so on February 28th, 1983, Lewis spent the evening at the home of his neighbor, Chris Richards, drinking and playing board games. The next morning, Lewis armed himself with two pistols and returned to Richard's home, who invited him in for a cup of coffee because they're neighborly. Um, As Richard's reached reached for the cup, Lewis fired a shot at him, destroying his glasses and injuring his eye. Um, I'm now realizing again that there's a lot of face shots in my true crime stories that I tell. The last one was the jealous boyfriend. Oh, yeah. Remember? What's up with that? I don't know. I just realized it right now. Coincidence. Um, while a second round grazed his head and neck. Um, so Richards fell to the ground and asked Lewis to stop shooting. Lewis mocked him and said, look, you're already dead. If you'll just oh, quit fighting, I'll make it easy for you. So obviously enraged by this answer, (laughs) Richards jumped to his feet and began to struggle with Lewis, during which he grabbed a knife from the table and stabbed Lewis, um, causing a slight injury to his left chest and in his right thigh. So Richards fled in his stocking feet into the snow towards the Kennecott uh, Tourist Lodge, where Lewis shot at him more, um, nicking his right arm. Um, and then Lewis went to another neighbor's house that I guess was like pretty close to them, but mm-hmm. didn't find anyone there. So he followed Richard's trail and set the cabin on fire. Gosh. Um, and then he returned home and grabbed a Ruger Mini 14 with the silencer covered in the beaver fur, which I still just like. Is this sort of like super silencer? I don't get, I don't know. Because like silencers aren't silent. No. Maybe it's supposed to muffle it. I don't know. I, I don't know. I did have to figure out who was going home for a second, though. <laughs> yeah. The, I mean, you mean the Lewis. bad guy? Yes. Um. The bad guy. So he got the silencer covered in fur, whatever. Um, went four miles to the cabin of Les and Flo Hegland which served as a makeshift post office and had the only radio powerful enough to contact the outside world. 
Um, when he got there, he kicked open the door and shot both Heglins, um, as well as Maxine Edwards, who had come by to wait for the mail plane. Um, since this is such a remote place, the mail plane, like, came, was, like, the only thing that really came in and out of there. Mm. Um, that makes sense. And it came every Tuesday, I believe. Fun. So, he made sure that they were dead by shooting them again in the head, and then he dragged their bodies to the rear bedroom, stacking them on each other, and then left the silencer on the nightstand. And I don't know if he did that on purpose or what I... This guy's not the brightest. Hmm. Um, Richards had gotten away and didn't burn in the fire. Um, That's good. He had been picked up by a neighbor... Um, some articles say that it was Tim Nash. I think most of them said that, but I don't want to be, um, wrong. Um, uh, he was picked up on a snowmobile and taken to the airstrip that was, like, five miles from town or something. Mm -hmm. Like, it was, everything in here is far away because it's, like, a small but, like, spread out town. So, Tim Nash arrived at the Heglin cabin because he had just... Um, dropped Richards off at the airstrip and uh, obviously Richards told him what happened. Yeah. So he went to the Heglin cabin to warn the couple of Lewis after taking Richards to the airstrip. Um, he was armed with a shotgun and he saw blood in the kitchen and then saw Lewis on the front porch and fired at him, which slightly wounded Lewis. Um, Lewis returned fire and hit Nash in the right leg. And Nash fled back to the airport and told, um, the other people that were there, because I think people were there waiting for the plane, the mail plane to come in. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he fled back to the airport. It's so cute. A little cat train. <clears throat> the cat train is basically just a giant snowmobile tractor that yeah. pulls a whole bunch of things. Finally found a real picture. So... <laughs> So Nash flew back to the airport and told the others that were waiting there for the uh, airplane. Um, and he asked his wife Amy to fly to Glen Allen, which is like <clears throat> the closest town that has mm-hmm. like a hospital, I'm assuming, um, with Richards, but she refused. So Richards got flown off by pilot Gary Green and Lewis had followed Nash to the airstrip. This is all pretty chaotic because I don't think yeah. anything's documented uh-huh. well. So, Lewis had followed Nash to the airstrip and opened fire at the Nashes from a distance of about 250 yards. With his Ruger? I don't I know. He has he multiple has. guns. Nobody puts the silencer. I don't know. I know. He has anymore. multiple guns, so I don't know. Um, he fired about 10 rounds and hit them, then approached shooting them again in the head and dragging their bodies down the runway oh, to hide gosh. them behind snow berm. Do you know what that is? Yeah, berm of snow. This is the push pile from clearing the runway. Well, I assumed it was something like that, but I was like, is this something I don't... I don't know. But anyway, so he he hid their bodies. Um, So then Harley King arrived on a snowmobile, because everybody's, like, showing up to get their mail. Oh, that's so upsetting. At this point. (laughs) So Harley King arrived on a snowmobile pulling Donna Brim... Bram? Byram? Mm. On a dog sled behind... They saw Lewis standing beside the bodies, and he fired at them, striking um, Donna in the right arm and hitting King in the leg. 
King lost control of the snowmobile and crashed, knocking both people off of their vehicles. And so then Lewis took this opportunity to run towards them, and Donna fled when King told her to, because um, she was going to stay there and, like, try and fight no, him, like, I guess. No, good, good for him to and, tell her to um, run. So Lewis wanted to go after her because this whole his whole plan is like try not to have any witnesses of yeah. whatever his psycho plan is. Definitely in this remote location, if you're the only survivor, it wasn't you. You're not a suspect. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so Lewis wanted to go after her because if he loses her, then that's a yeah. witness that has just seen him shoot all these people and kill all yeah. these people and whatever. But um changed his mind when King yelled at him. So he shot twice, um he shot King twice in the back of the head killing him, and then chased af- after Donna, but lost her at the Higland home. Um, at this point, it was around 11 a.m., and the mail plane had arrived. But the pilot, Lynn Ellis, had been warned by Green, Who um, the other pilot. The other guy to the hospital. Yeah. Um, had been warned not to land since Lewis had gone on a shooting spree. Um, so Ellis called base and asked them to send... Um, state police mm-hmm. um so i don't think the mail plane landed i think it just probably like circled over yeah. top or something um so then she returned or she or he i'm not sure returned to glen allen yeah i guess lynn can be a boy or yeah so troops arrived by helicopter about an hour and a half later um, and at this point, Lewis was running out of victims, so oh, no. he put... Because it's just a small town. Like, no, I know! It's That's so upsetting. He's going to kill the whole town. So, Lewis put two duffel bags with guns, um, hundreds of rounds of ammo and other gear on one of Nash's snowmobiles and headed into the wilderness. He was discovered by troops around 2 p.m. and, uh, when they were flying overhead, uh-huh. so they saw him, um... And when they got to him, he told them he was Chris Richards, um, the guy who got flown to the hospital, uh-huh. and that Lewis Hastings had been um, going berserk and was shooting people. But since the troops already knew that Chris was headed to the hospital and also had gotten a description of what the shooter looked yeah. like, they arrested him and flew back to McCarthy, um, where he admitted that he was the gunman. Um and then with this, this part made me like, hold on, what? So I, I, I'm reading ahead. I, I'm cheating. So then they flew back to McCarthy and got the, one of the other victims, Donna, who had been shot in, I think it was the arm that she got shot. Yeah. And then I think they all together, cops and the gunman and Donna, all flew back to Glen Allen together. So the cops and the criminal so and the victim. So she has to be there. Yeah. And I'm assuming in the same plane helicopter with the guy who just shot her and killed all of her neighbors. Anyway, so, um, like I said, others say that, like, the neighbors were already just all waiting at the airstrip for the mail. And Lewis went there to kill them and hit the bodies. At the airstrip. But, like, that story just doesn't make as much sense to me. You know? No. So I don't really know Here's which the, story... The story you told, way more entertaining. Well, I know. And then I was he like went to this... the airstrip to shoot all the people. Yeah. So I don't really know exactly what happened that day because I literally could not find a single source that, like, agreed on all of the same events. Yeah. But this one seemed, like, to make the most sense to me, personally. Like... 
why would you go to the airstrip and kill everybody if you don't know if when exactly everybody's going to be there? Like, because otherwise the other person can, like, come on the snowmobile and see you with them. And like, it just makes more sense to go to the homes and kill them. Yeah. And then try and follow witnesses, whatever. Um, so, according to Hastings' own testimony, his original plan was to kill all the residents of McCarthy in order to get rid of any possible witnesses. And by witnesses, I don't under... Like, I don't know what they were supposed to witness. I don't get that. Mm. Um, then he wanted to kill the male, um, the male plane pilot, which I'm assuming maybe that's what his plan was. To, so nobody that's would why know he that was he, going yeah. there, yeah. Um, so that's why he wanted to kill all the neighbors, I'm assuming. And use the aircraft to dump the bodies on the glaciers of the Rang- Rangel Mountains? I don't know. Which, why, why, not... why do you need to move them if no one comes to this town? They need to move the, the, bodies. Or the bodies. He wanted to dump the bodies on the glaciers of, uh, the glaciers of those mountains. Why? I don't know. That seems like And then he so wanted to effort. land on the highway and rig the plane to take off by itself. Once again, why? I don't know. So then it crashes and they think he's dead on the plane? After this, he wanted to incapacitate the pipeline, hijack a fuel truck, and commit suicide by crashing into a pipeline pump station in the hopes that the incineration of his body would prevent his family from knowing he was responsible for the attack. Uh huh. That was his whole plan, and none of it makes sense. Um, but a psychiatrist who examined him after his arrest doubted um, that he actually made this plan because he had an inflated sense of self worth, which would have probably prevented him from taking mm-hmm. his own life. Um, so Lewis was tried in. 1984 for six counts of murder and two counts of attempted murder pleaded no contest and was sentenced to um sentenced on july 27th uh, 1984 to six 99 year um consecutive convictions Mm -hmm. for first degree murder and two 20-year terms for attempted murder convictions um, Lewis appealed, claiming he was temporarily insane due to inhalation of organic copper, but was dismissed. So, the last thing I saw is that he's still apparently in jail to this day. You know, he should be. So, that's the end of my story. I, I really quick looked up the, um, trial. Uh-huh. <laughs> Just to see what... What, what you know what is the actual like main order of things and it is so he's like okay i gotta blow up the pump station and he goes but i have to kill all of mccarthy because i don't want witnesses so his plan was to specifically go to that tuesday where that tuesday yeah. meeting at the airport to get rid of everybody yeah so that was that was 100 percent his goal is to kill absolutely everybody because they'll all be there getting their mail on tuesday mm-hmm. and then do then then he would go and do, do all the, those things all the all his whole list of things yes to blow up the pipeline because he didn't like that more money was coming to the area it was ruining the alaska he fell in love with <laughs> it wasn't even the pipeline and like the environmental things that ha- like could possibly do it was the fact that more money was coming into the area which meant possibly more people i guess 
Which I don't know what you he didn't think. Like. like that would bring more business for your stupid computer company. That is in a town that has seven people. No, he started it in Anchorage. Oh, he started in Anchorage. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. I thought it was sort of McCarthy. It's like, dude, there's a reason that didn't succeed. <laughs> yeah, no. It just, none of it makes sense at all. It's just another person who just feels like killing because they just are bored, I guess. I think, their life I think is he's, going wrong exactly. His life is going wrong and it can't, can't be his fault. So that's my story. All right. Well, try not to kill anyone and don't mess with Ouija boards. Bye. Bye.